Who else would like a book of John Kim's prayer? Yeah, we, we need one. We want one. Well, we're back in the Gospel of John, John chapter 11. So I want to invite you to turn with me there. As we get underway, I want to let you know that a fellow brown belt got the better of me on Monday evening and my neck since Monday night has been quite sore. Had a number of meetings and sermon prep and tried to sleep this week and it was difficult for all of those. And one of the meetings I had later on in the week <clears throat> uh, was over Zoom in America. And as I was talking, sometimes my chest or my throat or whatever, my neck would catch me. So I want you to know that if that happens while I'm preaching, I'm not having a stroke or a conniption or anything like that. Um, yeah. At seminary, we we were given a number of preaching professors and you praise God that you're given a, a plethora of preaching professors because if you just had one and you just listened to one, you would just echo one, but you're given a, a wide breadth of different uh, styles and, and topics of preaching. But one of those preaching professors used to say to us, I will come and find you in the middle of the night, three in the morning, wake you up and ask you, what is the sermon about this Sunday? Well, this morning, my youngest came to me and said, Dad, what's the sermon about this morning? And I had to answer, and I said, the sermon this morning is about Jesus being a very good and passionate and powerful Savior. I was able to answer that question because the preaching professor said to me, if you can't answer that question at three in the morning, you're not ready to preach. I thought, well, as one other preaching professor said, we're always and never ready to preach. But that's what the sermon's about this morning. Jesus is a very good and passionate and powerful Savior. So, back in the Gospel of John, it's what God has deemed necessary, deemed fit for us as a church family to be in as a staple diet from Lord's Day to Lord's Day. And the purpose of John is evangelistic and experiential, as you've heard me say many times. And John accomplishes that twofold purpose of being evangelistic and being experiential by presenting to us Jesus in His divinity and in His humanity as glory to behold, and we'll see some of that this morning. The last time we were together in John's Gospel, we saw in John 11, as we considered the first 27 verses, we saw three scenes in this narrative. And when we jump back into John's Gospel, we're back into narrative again. It's a little bit different than, than thematic conference preaching. We're back into the narrative here. And so we saw three scenes in those opening 27 verses, and just by way of reminder, we saw first glory revealed through love in the opening six verses of John 11, as Jesus really, we saw He delayed helping Lazarus. And we, we saw that He did that from a place of love, not from an absence of love. We also saw their glory revealed through what I called care, in verses 17 to 16, as Jesus instructed the disciples with somewhat of a parable about time in the day, the time that we have allotted to us in the day in verse 9, look there, are there not 12 hours in the day, He said. And that's to say that God is with you, that He has given you and I a ministry, He's given us a time to do that ministry, that there is a time and a length that will never and cannot ever be altered, no matter how much barrage you receive in that ministry, or any fear that's imposed upon you, 
And so be courageous and just keep going. That's what Jesus is saying to the disciples there. Keep going. That was Christ's word to them. That's Christ's word to each of us here again today. And then we also saw glory revealed through what I called life. Glory revealed through life in verse 17 through to verse 27. As Jesus spoke those very familiar words, I am the resurrection and the life which really speaks of our union with Christ and how outside of being in Christ, all there is found is death. But oh, how precious life is when in fellowship, communion and union with the resurrected Christ, whom is our life. Colossians 3 tells us that our life is hidden with Christ, whom is our life. And so those verses, by way of reminder, I commend those messages to you, that previous one in John online to you, if you missed that, so as to catch up and keep up. And since we had a good break over impact and other Sundays, considering various themes and applications from God's Word. But we're back in John now, staple diet for us as a church, and we'll pick up right where we left off this morning. And our focus this Lord's Day will be on verses 28 to 46, 28 46. We're not going to read that as we normally would just for the sake of time. We'll read it together as we track through, but I do want us to pray. Father, we come before you and acknowledge that this is a holy time. Lord, we sung of a refiner's fire. We long to be holy. Lord, we know that you bring things into our life week by week, day by day throughout the week, and you refine us and test us and we long to hear your son speak through his word. We believe in the Holy Spirit of God and we ask that he would come, be sent to illuminate truth, to guide us into deeper truth, to form and fashion us into more and more of the likeness of your beloved son. Thank you that we are here and thank you that we have this time. Help us not to take it for granted, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. In our passage this morning, there's four more scenes. Four more scenes to encounter and to witness, to study, and then be impacted by. It's no good if we just observe scenes, but we're not impacted by them. As we go through each one, may we all be given eyes to see new truth. Perhaps we haven't seen it before. And then to leave here committed to live out the truth that we have beheld today. Well, the first scene before us in our passage this morning, as we continue to walk through John 11, is number one, if you're taking notes first, a meeting with Mary. A meeting with Mary in verses 28 to 32. Look at verse 28. When she said this, she went away and called Mary, her sister, saying secretly, The teacher is here and is calling for you. Now, that's referring to Martha. Martha, when she heard it, she got up quickly and she went to Mary. Martha has just confessed Jesus as the Messiah in the previous verse. Look at verse 27. Yes, Lord, I believe that you are, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, He who comes into the world. She really confesses the very purpose of the Gospel of John right there, as I've said prior. Martha is with Jesus outside the village, and now she runs back into the village to her sister Mary. 
Her, her Mary is in a, in a house full of mourners. Obviously, Lazarus has died. And Martha comes in and says to her sister Mary in secret, that is, quietly and personally, the teacher is here and is calling for you. Look at verse 29. Verse 29 says that when Mary heard it, she got up quickly and was coming to him. Here now is the start of the meeting with Mary. Look at verse 30. Now, Jesus had not yet come into the village. He was still in the place where Martha met him. Jesus is not inside the village. He's still outside where he first spoke to Martha. And verse 31 tells us that the people who were with Mary in her house got up and followed Mary to Jesus as well. And verse 31 says that, look at the end of there, they followed her supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. She thought, they all thought that Mary was going to Lazarus and weep and mourn and they followed. But the first thing to notice here, I want you to pay attention to is that little phrase, the teacher. Not a teacher, definite article, the teacher. The teacher. That is how Martha addresses Jesus to Mary. First, in Judaism, rabbis did not teach women. Expressly forbidden. It was forbidden by the law. Man's law, not God's law. And praise God, for that, Jesus teaches women. He teaches Mary and Martha. He taught the woman at the well in John 5. He teaches the Syrophoenician woman in Matthew 15. He teaches others. He teaches every woman of God here. He teaches you. He teaches us all, the men and women and the children. He teaches even amidst a sea of teachers that we all have, because we all have teachers, don't we? We all have teachers, teachers for swimming, teachers for the arts, teachers for exercise, teachers for school, teachers for maths, teachers for music, for many things. But Jesus is the teacher par excellence. In fact, He not only teaches us spiritual things, He actually teaches us not specifically how to be good at maths or good at music, but He teaches us how to be good as we pursue maths and music and the arts and the like. And so we have many different teachers, don't we, to listen to. We listen to them and we learn from them. And if we fail to listen regularly and attentively and to press in and to learn from them, then the activity or the art or whatever we're doing or whatever we're learning is obviously adversely affected, right? Well, the same goes for Christ the teacher. And Christ the teacher who exceeds all other earthly teachers because what He teaches transcends what all the other earthly teachers teach us. And if we're not regularly listening to and learning from the master teacher Jesus, who teaches in our very soul and our very heart and our very mind, then it is and will be our life and the living of this life to the glory of God, which is adversely affected. We don't just simply need the teacher Jesus to teach us once. We need the teacher Jesus to perpetually, 
be that divine word to us, that logos from which we must continually receive because of the need for the renewing of our mind. So as to not be conformed to this world. You know, when I was at primary school and high school, I was actually, believe it or not, a pretty good student. Not the smartest, but I was pretty well behaved for the most part. But I was so caught up in sport, always late to class because the game at lunchtime went overtime and the back row was my home. I'll tell you, distractions abound in the back row at school. All the notes are passed, all the chewing gum is chewed, all the etchings on the table all take place on the back row. And that was my home. And I can tell you, I wasn't listening as I ought. And I'm sure it adversely affected me. In fact, when exam time came, it caused panic and pressure. Well, we simply cannot do that kind of thing to the teacher, Jesus. Back row to Jesus' class is seriously detrimental. We need to be tuned in to Jesus and regularly being taught of Him because when exams come in the form of trials, being inattentive to Jesus will cause panic and pressure, anxiety and fear. And you will say the wrong things, I will say the wrong things, you will do the wrong things and we'll think the wrong things. And so how do we ensure we're regularly attending and attentive in Jesus, the teacher's class. Well, we need to ensure we have Him teach us at home. As we read His Word in private, as we read His Word as a family, we need to ensure that we have Him teach us as we come to church, as we hear His very Word expounded corporately. We have Him teach us as we rub shoulders with other believers in the Lord, other brothers and sisters. We certainly see Him, as we'll see in our passage today, we have Him teach us in our pains of trials as we cling to Him and as He ministers to us there. The life of faith is the school of faith where the captain of our faith, the Lord Jesus, instructs us. Here, Martha tells Mary, He is calling for you. Come to class. If you're here as a Christian, He's already called for you. Class is in session and you and I need to be attentive to Jesus. And if you're not a Christian here this morning because you've not trusted with a very simple trust that the object of Christ upon the cross for your sin, where He suffered sin's penalty for you on the cross in your place and then rose again the third day, then you need to hear the words of these ladies today, the teacher is calling for you. Come into this classroom, come to Christ freely and as you enter into the classroom with the greatest of all teachers, He'll give you a new heart upon entry. With new affections and the forgiveness of all your sin. 
And so that's the first scene. It's a meeting with Mary. The second scene in this true narrative account here in John 11 that we see, number two, is a moved Messiah. A moved Messiah in verses 33 to 39. You say, well, what about verse 32? We'll get there in a moment. But a moved Messiah. It's here now that we begin to see what marks Jesus the teacher is something altogether different than most all other teachers we have in this life. We're going to see here, look at verse 33, when Jesus therefore saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her weeping. He was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. We see here that the teacher is not removed and not distant from our deepest pains. He is in them with us. He is the only true teacher who enters into our tears and our times of hurt and he weeps with us. He may have very different intentions when he enters in, not the same intentions we do, but he's there with us. He is there weeping with us. What triggered this? Verse 32 now. Look there. When Mary came where Jesus was, when she saw him and fell at his feet, she said to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Do those words sound familiar to you? If you're paying attention or you've forgotten, by way of reminder, these are the exact same words that her sister said back in verse 21. Look at verse 21 of John 11. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Both the sisters had the same response. They had the same view here. Our brother is dead, but if Jesus was here, he would not have died. Why? Because Jesus has the power and the authority to work signs of healing. He healed that blind man and all those others too. Now, there's an important lesson here for us right here. I want you to notice that Mary and Martha were both deeply hurt. They were broken in their spirit. They were downcast and they were desperate and they come in that same way to Jesus. They don't, they don't clean themselves up or put on a facade or try and come with words that might appease the Lord Jesus. No, they come broken. They come to Him broken and they pour out their heart in that brokenness, which is what we must do. We must never be stoic to the one who knows our very heart and our brokenness. The sisters come broken, but note this, and let this be a life lesson to you, because as I studied this, this was a life, I pray, a life lesson for me. They come broken, feeling all is at loss, but they come never having lost the understanding of who Jesus is, and that Jesus still possesses all power. Do you notice what they say? If you had not come, if you had have come, my, my, if you had not come, my, my brother would not have died. They understand that Jesus possesses all power in the entire universe. 
He is the teacher, the Lord of all universe. We come to Him broken, but we must come never forgetting that He is God of God, Lord of all lords, and He is in possession of all the power in the world. And so Mary comes and she is hurt, and yet in her hurt, her heart is fixed on who Jesus is and what He can do. Look now at the response from Jesus in verse 33. We just read it. He was deeply moved. Deeply moved. And look at the next word, and troubled. Now, this phrase, deeply moved, is a single word in the original language. And it causes no small amount of debate. As my neck was crooked, as I had trouble sleeping, I read so much. And it took a long time to to read through all this pile of words about this single word and what's going on here. It's a word used twice here in our text, verse 33, and then again in verse 38. And there are three other times in the New Testament where it is used, and it is never, ever used in reference to compassion. Compassion. The other word, troubled, is a word that means literally to shake back and forth. What happens when you're shaking back and forth? You're agitated, right? It's a word that means agitated. And so, instead of thinking that Jesus is weeping here from a place of compassion only, if we think that, we miss the depths of what's really going on here. And so, it's not compassion that Jesus is feeling here. Some want to say that Jesus is therefore angry with Mary and angry with all the people who are mourning because they don't understand that Jesus will bring Lazarus back to life and his motives for delaying to come and heal Lazarus are being questioned. I don't believe that for a second. But what we do see here are two very different types of emotion and grief playing out before us. You see, as Jesus is deeply moved and troubled, it means that He is vexed and agitated in His spirit. Look, He asked Mary in verse 34, where have you laid Him? Where have you laid Him? Here, come and see, is the reply, end of verse 34. And then that verse, shortest verse in the Bible, verse 35, Jesus wept. Jesus wept. You need to understand that Jesus wept from a very different place than that of Mary and Martha. In fact, the word for wept in verse 35, in reference to Jesus, is an altogether different word used to describe Mary and Martha weeping. Regarding the women, it's a word meaning to literally wail and cry out loud. Regarding Jesus... It's a different word meaning to break down and sob. Jesus had this deep agitation and yes, anger in him that burst forth into a more silent shedding of tears. Two very different places of grief. Look at what happens when the people see Jesus in this state. Look at verse 36. See how he loved him. 
Jesus wept. They look at Jesus weeping and they say, see how he loved him. But here is where they are wrong. They think Jesus' tears flow from a place of despair like theirs are and did. No. Jesus' tears flow from his love for Lazarus for sure. But Jesus knew this sickness would not ultimately end in death, but the glory of God, as he said earlier. And so what's going on here really is an expression of Jesus' humanity. Jesus' humanity. Jesus, as I said, he loved Lazarus for sure. He is filled with emotion and indignation and grief. Why? Because right before him, right in front of his face, in this moment is his arch enemy, sin, Satan, and death itself. Think about it. Jesus is the God-man. As the God-man, he knows all things, he has the power over all things as God. As man, he suffers all things and he will soon suffer at the hands of sin and death when he dies for the sins of his people so as to reconcile them to the Father and he'll rise from the dead himself for our justification, for our vindication. You see, Lazarus's death is a result of sin and death like all death. We all die. Why do we all die? Because when sin entered the world through one man, Adam, death spread to all men. Sin spread to all men and death spread and all men died. Romans 5 verse 12. And so right here, Jesus is face to face with what the world has to offer, sin and death. And he is filled with anger and indignation at the damage that is done by sin and death. And he is committed in just a very short time from now to endure the agonies of sin's punishment and undergo death itself so as to put an end to that vile foe of ours, sin and death, once and for all. That's the emotion that is welled up in Jesus. And that is why Jesus wept. When they say, see his tears, they say, oh, oh, how he loves them. They are not tears of sadness per se. They are tears of righteous and holy anger toward the ravaging effects of sin and death. Fueled by Satan himself. Jesus, I need you to understand this. Jesus does not love us solely because he cries for us. Jesus loves us because He dies for us and destroys the stronghold that death had over us. You know the verse, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 55. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, grave, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law. What does it say? But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so here before us in our passage is a very special display of both the divinity and the humanity of Jesus so as to reveal glory to us. You see, on his way 
to crush sin and death for us as the sent Son of God, He was also the man, the man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And because He was acquainted with grief, because He experienced humanity, the full experience of humanity, yet without sin, He is able to fully sympathize with us in our weaknesses and praise God for that. Our teacher is not sitting at the front of the classroom and then gone until the next day. No, He is with us in the darkest of days, the deepest of our hurts, and He is able to fully sympathize and agonize with us in our weaknesses, which He does as the great high priest, Hebrews 14, 15. He sympathizes with us. But here's another way He does that. He sympathizes with us over the agonies that sin, Satan, and death bring to others. And right here, right by the tomb of Lazarus, his dear friend and loved friend, as he observed all that was going on, he was filled with determination to crush death and sin on the cross for us, where as a man he endured all suffering and agonies as our substitute. And so what is the raising of Lazarus? What is taking place here? It is a taster. It is a teaser. It really is a foreshadow of what was to come. It is to display what Jesus himself will soon do. It is the warning shot, if you will, across the bow to sin and death and Satan and the devil. Soon I will crush you under my feet. You can throw everything at me. You can throw everything at me and my people. But just as I raised Lazarus from the dead here, so too I will soon raise from the dead. And when I do, and when the work on that cross is done and I rise again, sin and death will be defeated. Satan will be dealt a crushing blow. My kingdom will advance. My church will be built. My glory and my gospel will reach the ends of the earth. I am the man of sorrows. I am acquainted with grief. My people will experience sorrows and grief. But the victory is mine. And if the victory is mine, it is theirs also because death has been defeated. It's as though Jesus says life is theirs to live as a result of that. It will be one through my selfless love for them. And I love Lazarus. And so he'll be my example to you about what I'm about to do. He will rise now just like I will raise then. Because I, and not you, have the power over life and death. I am Yahweh in human flesh. Behold my glory. You want further evidence that Jesus is worked up over his enemy sin and death here? Look at verse 37. But some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind have kept this man also from dying? From dying? Death had won here, they thought. Look at verse 38. And so Jesus, look, again being deeply moved within, exact same phrase, deeply angered and agitated, exact same phrase. He was face to face with the arch enemy, death and sin. And look what he says. He says there, 
in verse 39, removed the stone. He wants after it, you see. Remove the stone. He wants to go after this so as to prove this, so as to illustrate this. He wants to show that he has power over death, to set it as the precursor, as his final blow to death and sin that he'll soon make on the cross. This is, my dear brothers and sisters, this is a moved Messiah. Martha then says something that really reflects our ongoing frailty as believers. Just like you never arrive at being fully satisfied in Jesus, but it is the battle that we must always pursue, so too as believers we never arrive with a perfect tongue and a perfect mind assessing all things that come our way. I mean, this last week taught you that, right? Taught me that. Martha reflects our frailty, even as believers. She had confessed earlier that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God. But now she's somewhat doubting Him. Look there. Remove the stone, Jesus said. Martha said, Lord, by this time there'll be a stench, for He has been dead four days. Doubting. Such doubt can enter our hearts at times, but we need to really fully trust our Messiah teacher, our Lord, our Savior, our God, Jesus, who was so moved here that we will always trust Him to be moved for us too. You see that? He's moved for you and I. He has everything for us. He does all things well. And all things work according to the kind intention of His will for us. Well, that's the first and second scene. A meeting with Mary, the Messiah moved. And now the third scene, as we draw now to this miraculous sign itself, is number three, a massive display of glory. You've heard me say in times past that John plucks out seven signs doesn't call them miracles, he calls them signs. And they're all aimed at to fulfill the purpose of the Gospel of John, that we would believe. And that having believed, we would then go on believing and have life in His name experientially. Look at verse 40. Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? Do you see beyond the words here to what Jesus is very gently, though it is a rebuke, very gently doing to Mary here. You see, she's doubting Jesus a little. And her doubts are because her eyes and her heart are toward the ground and the grave. And so what Jesus does is He lifts up her chin as it were, with these words. Did I not say to you that if you believe, you'll see the glory of God? He lifts up her chin and he points her to what matters most in life. And he points her to what really matters most to Jesus, the glory of God. You and I can too often place our eyes to the ground 
and the things of this world. But we need to be reminded. And Jesus places his hand, as it were, under our chin and lifts us up and says, no, no, there's greater things than that. There's the glory of God to behold and to display. Look at verse 41. So they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. Past tense. I thank you, Father, that you have heard me. Jesus is not praying here for the Father to raise Lazarus. He is thanking the Father whom Jesus already prayed to and who already has heard him and answered him. What's one thing, just quickly, we can take away from that observation? Well, for certain, Jesus was praying prior for Lazarus. There's no record of him praying prior to Lazarus specifically, but he certainly was. And I immediately think, well, if he was praying for Lazarus, I can be comforted that he's praying for me too. And if he was praying for Lazarus, you can be comforted that he's praying for you too. And that the Father has already answered Jesus' prayers for me and for you. And then as Jesus keeps praying as a priest interceding for us, ever living to do that, the Father answers the prayers. Do you think there'd ever be a prayer that Jesus prays the Father doesn't answer? And then very interestingly, Jesus says in verse 42, look there, I knew that you always hear me. Okay, we understand. We know enough of the Gospel of John to know that I and the Father are one. But look at the next words. But because of the people standing around, I said it, so that they may believe that you sent me. They may believe that you sent me. You see, what Jesus is doing here is he's, he's praying these words and saying these words, seeking to draw the people watching on. He is setting the table, really, for the miraculous sign that's about to happen. Jesus wants them all, he longs for them all to connect that he is from the Father and that what he does is in step with the Father and he prays like this because he wants them to believe the truth and be saved. You call this a didactic prayer. I remember being saved two and a half seconds, bull in a china shop. Lisa and I go to an evening service, just this contemporary, worldly, contextualizing kind of church. They gave an opportunity to pray. Matthew's been saved two and a half seconds. He is holier than thou. He knows the true gospel. I get up and pray this just didactic prayer to them. Lord, help, help these people not to be... Uh, you know, so eager to be pleasing to the world's side. And it's just a rebuke to them. And I left there and I was like, well, that was dumb. Went to the guy who led me to the Lord. I'd been saved maybe two months and a couple of months. And he said to me, oh, that's a didactic prayer. I said, what's that? He said, oh, that's when you pray and you're trying to teach those that are in front of you. I still remember that, a lesson for me. 
But here Jesus is praying a didactic prayer very different than mine was. He's setting the table. And after praying that, look at verse 43. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. At the cross, death and sin and the grave would be finally robbed of all its victory. And here now was a foretaste divine. Here is a display of glory in the Son of God, the Lord Jesus. As he exercises power over sin and death. Lazarus come forth really loud. Really loud. And then the word come forth displays the idea of get out of here, get out here. And he comes forth. You know, Jesus said back in John chapter 5, verse 25 through to 29, he said this, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Now, obviously, there in John 5, that's a reference, obviously, to a day to come when we will all be raised to life. That was a day to come. Well, so too was the cross for Jesus here as he raised Lazarus, a day to come. And so, again, this raising of Lazarus is a foreshadowing of what was to come, but it's also an illustration. All signs in John signify something beyond the miracle itself. And this is an illustration and a sign of something that's already come for the believer. You know it. We were dead. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were in a tomb. We were on the ocean floor. We had no ability to exit that condition. And we were raised to life. By the word of God, the call of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. A flickering ray, right? Because when you think about it, many people saw the raising of Lazarus back to life. Many people. And have you thought about this? Jesus, his delay in going to Lazarus meant that Lazarus died, which meant a bunch of mourners gathered together. Mary running meant all the mourners came. God ordained the whole thing. What is sickness? No, no, death. To be, to be raised from the death is a, is a mighty display of God. And God ordained that many mourners would come and see it. But only those who believe in Jesus see the glory of God in it. If you are an unbeliever here this morning, when you hear about the glory of God, you cannot see it. Jesus says to you, did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? And the pain in my neck, I forgot my watch and this watch is, this clock's broken, so 
someone cook lunch. No, not too much longer. John, you know, he said in the very first chapter of this gospel, did he not? The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And what did he say? And we beheld His glory. Well, I want you to know that as John writes John 11 in our passage this morning, he is speaking of that glory which he beheld. And we now behold it too by the eye of faith. Because we have by grace alone believed in Christ alone. And belief is now the topic for the fourth and final scene. Very quickly, if you're taking notes, we see in verses 45 and 46 a majority conversion. A majority conversion. Look at verse 45. After Jesus had said, to the people, unbind him and let him go. Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done, believed in him. This will end in the glory of God. Verse 46, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things that Jesus had done. Some of them. Many believed. Majority conversion here. Church family. Jesus is the teacher. If Jesus is the teacher, then you and I have people to teach. I listed a whole bunch of teachers before. James chapter 3 verse 1 says, Let no, many of you become Bible teachers, pastors, because you'll receive a stricter judgment. I know this, I feel the weight of this. We have people to disciple. Church family, Jesus wept as a man of sorrows on his way to defeat his foe of sin and death for us. He didn't say much more to Mary other than, well, Martha, rather, just remove the stone. In the midst of their pain, he didn't have a lot of words. We need to learn that lesson. I've had too many words sometimes. We need to not have as many words. And sometimes we just need to weep. With those who weep. As they suffer from the lasting effects of sin and death in this world. Reminding them that this world where sin and death still pollutes. Is, is not to overcome us fully. Because we're united to the one who said. Fear not I've overcome this world. And ever reminding one another that. The world to come is void of all sin and death. Because Jesus overcome it fully for us upon that cross. Church family, Jesus displays and displays His glory. Well, you and I need to live beholding His glory and living for His glory. Doing all things, no matter how menial or how small, for the glory of God. And last thing. Jesus sparked conversion here. We need to speak the gospel. Open our mouths with the gospel. I want you to go back very quickly and look at a key aspect to what we've all seen here this morning. It's important for us to look again very quickly at verse 31, and then we're done. I want you to see that little word in verse 31 quickly. Quickly. Mary got up quickly. Greek word, tachios. It means 
promptly. It conveys the idea very strongly of not delaying. Not delaying. We have need to come to Jesus quickly. Dear saint who still sins, we need to ever promptly come to Jesus. We need His instruction always. We need to come to class quickly, promptly. Don't delay. Every day we need His glory to behold His glory. We need to bathe in His love and mercy as revealed in the gospel. Why do we need all this? Why do we need all that? Why do we need to be quick? Well, we need to be quick to ensure a visible commitment, a continual renouncing of self, and a biblical love that keeps no records of wrongs and that is patient. Here, our Savior this morning displayed for us that He is very good that He is very passionate and that He is very, very powerful. Let's pray. Father, we come to You this day and this moment. Lord, we acknowledge we acknowledge that we have beheld deep truth. Without your Holy Spirit, this will all be feeble and pointless. So we pray, Lord, that you would, by your Spirit, plant deep in our heart new truths. Ignite our affections. O King Jesus, continue to to summons us, as it were, in sanctification repeatedly to yourself and continue to, to, to work on our affections that so easily wander and Thank you for defeating sin and death. Thank you that when we die, we're done with dying because of what you did. Thank you, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.